Let's just have a reset for a moment around this series, okay? So let's look at a couple of slides real quick. And again, this does not count as sermon time. All right? Put that clock away. Put it away. Let's look at this first slide. Some things I want to remind you of. Go ahead. First slide, please. There it is. So we handed out these forms at the beginning of the year. We have new, brand new sheets of paper, new forms. This is just a tool to remind you to be training your mind to think Philippians 4.8, to think on these things, which we'll get to that passage. But we want you to know we have some more of these available. You can use them in different ways. Electronically, it's available on our website. And um, this way you can just intentionally write out stuff. Sometimes I write on mine that's stuffed in my journal. Sometimes I don't. It just reminds me to keep trying to think on certain things. The next slide reminds us that we want to remind us to memorize this scripture together. And we have some new little cards that you can take with you. If you don't have one of these, you want to take with, it, with you and put it in a prominent place so that you can memorize Philippians 4.8. And let's just keep memorizing it together. We're going to have an opportunity to recite it here in a moment. And then we have some new bookmarks because what we've been doing with these bookmarks is we have a QR code with a devotional and this will be our third devotional that we are giving to you to access. It's called Mastermind. We would invite you to do that. And here's the deal. This is about getting someone to do this with you. And so if you want to invite some people, you can give them a bookmark. There's bookmarks there. You can take a bookmark for yourself. It has the QR code on it. And you can then say, hey, why don't you do this with me? Or you can Go ahead and create it, and you can invite them to do it with you. But I would really encourage you to go ahead and, um, and do that. It didn't take long when processing this sermon series that I knew we were going to get to where we're going to go today. And it was in my head and finding its way to my heart. And sometimes there's these places where a pastor preaches a message and it's sort of like, well, I'm preaching to myself and if you want to jump in, that's fine. If not, go ahead and scroll for cat videos or something. Right? So, so let's open up our hearts because something's going to happen today. We, we're going to have a feast. You see, we've already been feasting on fellowship together. And at the end of our service, we are going to gather around the feast of the Lord's Supper. But today, we're, it's like we're going to sit down to this banquet table laid out with all kinds of food. And we're going to go, and you know what feasts are about? Feasts are about eating. And today we're going to eat largely from the word of God. Stand with me if you would and let's recite together Philippians 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is present or praiseworthy, think about such things. Amen. I got hung up, you may be seated, at excellent. Every once in a while I get hung up at one of the words. 
But here's my question for Philippians 4.8 today. Why? Why did Paul write those words? Why did he instruct these people, command them really, to do this? Why was this little letter written to this small group in Asia, in Philippi, why did he write these words? Well, if you take the book of Philippians, and it'd be really great if you haven't done it yet, is read the whole letter and get a broad sweep of the entire letter of Paul. And as you're reading it, you can begin to see that he's addressing some specific things. And, and you can begin to see, that, well, why, is he, why is he talking about always being joyful and thankful? And, and why is he talking about this and this and this and this? And here's the reason why. Because Paul is addressing a church in conflict. At some measure. He addresses division and disunity. And he actually names two people who were participants in that. Syntyche and Yodia. He, he seems to address things like envy. And elitism. As some people saw themselves better than others. Like, why would he say those kind of things? Why would he try to say things that are the opposite of that unless he was addressing the issue? He, he seems to be addressing anima, animal kingdom rules. You know what animal kingdom rules are, right? They are, look out for number one. And he's clearly at one point addressing complaining. He actually talks about complaining. He actually says, stop complaining. So we know he's, he's addressing complaining, fighting, and slander. Some of those things seem to be as natural as breathing for these people, apparently. So, so that's what he's doing. But I then ask this question, so what? So what does that have to do with Philippians 4.8? Well, I wonder if Philippians 4.8, at least at some measure, is trying to address how and what we think about other people. Maybe something like this. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if there's anything that is excellent or praiseworthy about other people. Think about such things. It may just be that of everything we're going to talk about in this series, which we wrap up next week, this may be the hardest. Because here's a fact. Are you ready? I don't know if you know this. You probably haven't discovered this yet, so I think I want to help you, disciple you in this one area. Here's a fact. It would be like really easy to follow Jesus except for people. <laughs> Anyone else discover that? Right? It's like it'd be super easy to follow Jesus except for people. But here's another fact. This is a proven fact. God loves people more than anything. Amen.
So how we think about people matters to God. And that's why we're going to do something. Like today, remember I, I told you we're going to have this big banquet feast, right? This is one of those days where you're going to sit down, you're going to tuck in your napkin, you're going to sit down and you're going, I'm going to have some of that and that and that and that and that and then I'll have dessert. That's what we're going to do today because we're going to look at the entire chapter of Romans 12. We're going to let the word of God speak to us today. We're going to look at every word. Let's start here. Let's begin with the idea of growing and developing and desiring a beautiful mind. Do you want a beautiful mind? We don't think of our minds in those terms, do we? But do you want a beautiful mind? Romans 12 begins, as you may very well know, with a call to renew our minds, with a call to renew our thinking. So let's just dive into this and let the Word of God speak to us today. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, let's stop for a moment. Paul has just spent 11 chapters talking about the wonderful, life-transforming grace of God. And at the end of chapter 11, he talks about how incredibly magnificent God is. And he now says, because of all that, therefore, because of all that, because of God's amazing grace, because of how transformative that is, because of how amazing God is, because of how deep and rich God's love is, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of all of that, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. How many here want to know the will of God? Okay? Now let's recall something. We, we can begin to experience this transformation that Paul talks about when we think of Jesus, as we saw last week in Colossians 3, and as I mentioned in prayer, as Christ who is your life. And here's the empowerment of that. Right? And this is the secret. Christ lives in you. And that's the game changer for our thinking. Because now Jesus is living in us. When we invite Jesus to be our Lord and Savior, it's not just a transaction we're having. We are now inviting relationship with God. Life-transforming relationship. And now Christ in you is the hope of glory. We now have the grace and the power of Jesus Christ to help us think. I want you to grab that. As we offer our entire selves to God, as Paul says here, like a sacrifice given to worship, making all of life an act of worship, making Christ who is my life, we then have the potential to have a beautiful mind within our reach. The word he uses for transformation is kind of the root word of metamorphosis. We can have a spiritual metamorphosis. And it is thinking about that idea of the caterpillar who becomes the butterfly. It's that kind of transformation. It's a beautiful thing. A beautiful mind allowing us to know God's will. 
which also means, because the word know there is about experiential knowledge, to do God's will. Now, when we start talking about God's will, too often we reduce it down to a very subjective, personal question. And the question is this. Is this God's will for me? It's a good question. It's an important question. It has its place to be asked. But too often, when we ask that question, that question is more about me than about God. I'm trying to figure out what I want. Is this God's will for me? Walter Brueggemann suggests that another question could be asked, what is your purpose for being in the world that is related to the purposes of God? It's a good question. So what is your purpose in the world? If you want to talk about the will of God, what is your purpose in the world? What is your purpose of being in the world that's related to God's purposes, God's will? Well, we've established already how much God loves people. So God's purpose is rooted in love for people. And what that does is that expands the question about God's will. It expands the question from what is God's will for me to what is the highest and best good for others at the expense of personal sacrifice. You've heard me use that definition before. But what is God's highest and best good? And if we pursue God's highest and best good, we are going to land on God's will. So we started thinking in different terms, started thinking of it in that way rather than this way. I think we would discover something about our thinking that's powerful. So what if this idea of a renewed mind that Paul is talking about, what if it's more than something than what we think about? Like it's more than personal spiritual renewal. It is that. We think about that. But what if it's more than that? What if it's more than just behavior modification? Because it is that, because Paul says, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world. So there's something about behavior in there, right? So, but what if it's more than behavior modification? What if it's more than just a formula for me to figure out God's will for my life? More than just saying, okay, if I, if I do this, if I'm a living sacrifice, if I do that, then I'm going I'm I'm to land on it. I'm going to nail it. What if it's more than that? What if it means this? What if it means right-sizing the center of the universe? You see, this question changes everything. What is the center of your universe? Where is the center of your universe located? Where, where is the center of my universe located? Let's get back into this feast of the Word of God in Romans 12. Beginning with verse 3, we're now going to go down through verse 8. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. 
We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is to be giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. There's a lot of things we do with that passage of Scripture. I'm not just quite sure that Paul is trying to drive at when you look at the larger context because I I hope you caught it. Did you catch it? Did you catch what he was saying? He says to them, you know, do this living sacrifice thing, but then he says, so because you see, you're not the center of the universe. (laughs) Oh, Paul. Come on, man. He's saying you're not the center of the universe. There are others who are gifted and graced and have value and matter as much to God as you do. That's a really long paraphrase that I just gave you of do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. And he then goes on after one verse of saying, you're not the center. He spends five verses talking about others. And here's why this is such a point of grace. So often we think that everything depends on us. That we have to be in control. That it's about making the world work according to our preferences and our desires and the way we think it should be. That we think when we have the last word, we should have the last word and it should be the last word. And it's easy to get this all twisted up. Because then now I have to spend all this energy that I don't think God intends me to. But we are not to be conformed to the pattern of this world, is what it says. Here's the question then. Okay, well, what is the pattern of this world? The pattern of this world is centering the world around ourselves. That's the pattern of the world. And, and, and what this does, what this does, what's so good about this, is that it invites us to the grace that transforms our thinking by decentering ourselves and our lives and centering them on Christ, centering them on Jesus. And in Jesus, we find the grace we need, Christ who is your life. And the result is we begin to right-size our thinking about God, about others, and as a consequence, about ourselves. Just think with me about these two things. How do we right-size how we think about ourselves? Well, the first thing is to dwell on the magnificence of God. If you read the end of chapter 11, you see Paul is doing that. He's dwelling on the magnificence of God. John Ortberg wrote this, the soul must orbit around something other than itself, something it can worship. It is the nature of the soul. It's got to orbit around something other than itself. And if we don't worship the Lord God Almighty through Jesus Christ, we are going to worship something. We're made for that. We're worshiping people. We're worshiping beings. It's part of what makes us distinct from the animal kingdom is that we are made in the image of God and we have the capacity to worship. But secondly, not only do we dwell on the magnificence of God, but we right-size our thinking by intentionally acknowledging the good in other people. And 
that's part of what Paul's saying here. I, I think Paul is suggesting that we look and we see and we look for God-given gifts and goodness in others first. That our first movement towards another person or how we think about another person is intended to be to try to find the goodness. Now, I understand that's simplistic in some ways because remember what I said at the start? Trying to live for Jesus is easy until it involves people. So it's hard. It's hard because of our histories with people. It's hard because of our own histories and our own brokenness and how we view people. That makes it hard. But what I hear Paul saying is that a pathway to humility is, as someone else said, and it's, I don't know who said this, but they said a secret to humility is to train yourself in recognizing the good in others, especially those you're tempted to look down upon. Think about the people or the person right now that you look down upon. They may be in your family. They may be at work. They may be in this congregation. They may be somewhere online. They may be in the world. The first thing we have to think about is to train ourselves in recognizing the good in others. And the good news, remember Christ in us, we have him to help us with that. That's so important. Why is that important? Well, a friend Dallas Willard said this, if we allow certain negative thoughts to obsess us, then their associated feelings can enslave and blind us. That is, take over our ability to think and perceive. That is so true about people, especially when it comes to people. And that, I have to tell you, is the place where I need to allow the Holy Spirit to train my mind. Because it's especially true about people. Remember we talked about that negative, negativity bias that they suggest up to upwards of 80% of our thoughts are first negative. It's just the way we're wired. How we have to be intentional about moving towards that which is good. Well, when it comes to people, if we allow, if I allow certain negative thoughts to obsess me about people, especially those who may have hurt me, i got to be careful. That could take over my whole thinking and my perception of people. And then what happens is they can no longer, they now live in the box of my perception. And I, and I don't let them out, no matter what. And that's an area that I have to work on. So you see, the implications of Romans 12 and being a living sacrifice in some ways are most profoundly about others. This right-sizing our thinking. So, so the question then becomes is what does right-sized thinking look like? And I believe it looks like being Christ-centered and others-oriented. Being Christ-centered and others-oriented. So did you know that the internet is like, it's really dangerous to take the internet at its word. Anyone else know that? I'm just coming into that now. You know, just kidding. Well, I want to show you a quote. Go ahead and put this quote up there. The internet says King Solomon said this. I searched everywhere. And I need to tell you, the internet is lying. I know that's a new revelation for you. 
But, but it's a good quote. But I don't think Solomon said it unless this is some incredible paraphrase that I can't find. So if you find the quote from King Solomon in the Bible that said this, would you please let me know? I'm not giving it any more time. All problems are people problems, and most people problems are people refusing to act like people. <laughs> we are to act like real people. Like the way God intends for people to act. We are made in the image of God. We are to act like that. I am to act like that. That's a powerful thought. I am to be the best Jeff that I could possibly be. God made me a certain way. I, we saw that already, right? Some gifts, some graces. Some, we all have different personalities. We all have different life experiences. And in the context of all of that, especially all of the brokenness, the grace of God comes and meets me, and I need to be I need to be the best Jeff that Jesus made me to be. No one else. And when I'm that, when I'm that, when I'm like that real person, God intends, I become Christ-centered and others-oriented. Let these words now soak in. Remember from Colossians 3, put our mind on things above not on earthly things. And when we do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, the result of that is we do the will of God. What is the will of God? Romans 13, next chapter, Paul says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. It's done God's will. Whatever other command there may be, list them out. Whatever other command there may be, they're all summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Every time we try to add to that, there's other things we have to do. There's other commands we need to obey, but behind them has to be this. So I asked myself, what are the what is the primary tool in not conforming to the ways the world thinks? But I need to ask you, are you ready? Because none of what I'm about to share is optional if you are part of the 4%. Now last week, if you weren't here, we talked about the 4%. 63% of Americans identify as Christian. But when the question is asked, are you following Jesus? Only 4% said that. So what I'm about to share is not optional for the 4%. Now, if you want to stay in the 63% and just have a label as Christian, now is the time to start scrolling through the cat videos and doing something else. Because this is really hard. This is not abstract. abstract. This is... This is cuts through any thought of the Christian faith as mental ascent to belief or a, a prayer transaction to get myself to heaven or, or some kind of religious identification. This is hard. But 
in Christ by his grace and the power of his Holy Spirit, it's possible. It's attainable. It's doable. Beginning with verse 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope. Patient in affliction. Faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. And here's my favorite verse in this whole section. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Think on that for a little bit. And here it is. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What are you thinking about now? Now, I, I can attempt to list ways this has to be practiced, but that's a fool's errand, and here's why. Because each one of us is very distinct. And we have distinct places and people and areas in our life that has to be applied, this has to be applied to. How it needs to be applied to my life may not be applied in your life the same way. So what do we do with that? Well, we now take this, and I want to encourage you to take this entire Romans 12 and live in it a little bit. The devotional mastermind, by the way, is rooted in Romans 12, 1 and 2. But I'd invite you to take especially verses 9 through 21 and just kind of set them up as a filter, as a grid to maybe look through and say, okay, what does this mean for me? This relationship, this situation, this person, what I'm doing with whatever here, what I'm doing with my resources here, what, what does it mean for you? We can talk about all kinds of ways this can be manifested in our lives, but here's the reality is, is the way it's going to play out in my life because of the distinctive nature of my relationships, my experience, my encounters, my, what I do for a living, all those things, same thing with you, is going to play out differently. But this is the truth. William Greathouse said, this is not about love in the abstract. It is a description of what you do when you love. Or as Paul the Apostle says, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So what are you thinking about now? What does that mean for your life? It should not surprise us that this is what it means to have a transformed mind. Or as it says in 1 Corinthians 2.9, that we have the mind of Christ. It shouldn't surprise us that we have the capacity to think Christ-like 
and live Christ-like. So, as we prepare soon for communion, how did Jesus think? The Bible tells us how Jesus thought. Think of your ways, think of yourselves, the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. Philippians chapter 2 in the message. When the time came, Jesus set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave. He became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. And the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. Nothing will right-size our thinking more than dwelling on Jesus and what he's done for us. So as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, let's take a moment to silently reflect. Is your view of people conforming more to the world than to Christ's way of thinking? Is this idea of love for Jesus just an abstract concept, or is it an ongoing practice in loving like Jesus because you know you are loved by Jesus? And that's the good news. It's why we come to this table. This is an intentional act of thinking about the cross of Jesus, the life of self-donation that Christ lived. This is the flow of grace, and this is the flow of grace in this sacrament. It is that we have, we have together in Christ find that grace has been given to us. Grace has been received by us. And grace, because of that, is extended by us. It's the flow of grace. It's the flow of this table. Grace, this is his body. Grace, received, partake, eat. Grace extended. Let us go in the love and peace of Christ. This is about loving the Christ who loves us, which right-sizes the way we think about God, ourselves, and others. Let's think on these things. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever's true, Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, lovely, admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think on such things. Think on this table, which is the loveliest and the most excellent thought of all. Thanks be to God.